Welcome to Flow Hack. Welcome to episode three of Thought Hack. First and foremost, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Catalyst Case, Blue Microphone. All of our podcast episodes are recorded on Blue Mic. Big shout out to the Blue Microphone team, Sandstroke, and Wildhorn Outfitters. This is episode three, and we have the pleasure of sitting down and talking to Dr. Mark Lomax. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us on Thought Hack. Um, Thanks for having me, Reg. Happy to be here. No problem. Um, I I recently sat down and listened to the the 400 Suite demo, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. You're putting together a, a African epic. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's called it's 400. together, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's called 400 and an African epic and. Mm-hmm. It's an abbreviated version of an eight-hour musical journey. Eight hours. Yeah, 12 albums over eight and a half hours is the actual 400 and African epic work. It's like um, a big, thick Harry Potter book. (laughs) And the suite that we're releasing um, on Martin Luther King Day is the short story version. Okay, so... I mean, it's it's sort of obvious, but I'm going to ask why why Martin Luther King Day. Well, interestingly, um, it kind of just aligned fortuitously with some things happening. Martin Luther King Day is also International Day of Peace, and we happen to have a performance scheduled at the historic Severance Hall in Cleveland, where the Cleveland Symphony performed. And so, I thought it was kind of the stars aligning to to release the work about a year after we recorded it live in Columbus, Ohio, at another historic theater named for Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln Theater, uh, at um, yet another historic Ohio uh, concert hall in Severance that happened to be both on Martin Luther King Day. Uh, we all, I'm sure, familiar with what he stood for and International Day of Peace. Um, and then further... The work, all of my work really is about identity, authenticity, and power. So making sure that as individual human beings, we are able to optimize not only our potential, but realize that potential in an optimal way. And I believe that in that process, we really get rid of a lot of the isms that create the problems in the world, from racism to sexism to ageism to classism, genderism, all of those things. And in order... To get there, we have to do it together. And by doing it together, I think we create a new sense of what peace is. So all of that lined up and, you know, why not? Let's do it that day. All right. So you, you touched on a lot and, and we're jumping all over the place. I'm trying my best not to get in my, ahead of myself because there are a couple of, mm-hmm. of things I did want to touch on. So I, I listened to the demo and um, it, it wasn't especially long, but it there was a depth there it was it was really it was really enjoyable um i read the press release prior so i get that there's a lot of heavy stuff behind it but listening mm-hmm. to it just sort of as a standalone experience was great it was it was beautifully composed Thank now you. 
Now, in the context of all of the meaning behind it, it, it sort of becomes a different experience. What made you want to to communicate that through music? Um, well, two things. To the point of the piece being able to stand alone without the narrative, I believe that if it doesn't matter what the story is, if the music sucks, right? Yeah. So Agreed. Uh, you want the music, right? You you want the product itself to be excellent in terms of the experience for the listener and the performer. Um, the reason why I wanted to tell the story through music, it, it's, it's a couple reasons, really. One, I've been a musician since I was two, and I honestly don't know how to do anything else. This is how I engage the world. Um, two, in the traditional West African uh, role of the musician, or, or what the French call the griot, or in the Wolof language, the jolly, the role of that person, that individual, it's funny that you that. people, really, Pardon? It's funny you mentioned uh, the griot. Um, Dave Chappelle just recently um, mentioned that in his uh, acceptance speech. Yes, he did. Uh, yeah. Yes, he did. It's yeah. the same thing. It's the exact same purpose. And, and Dave Chappelle being one of my favorite comedians, he does exactly the same thing through his comedy, right? It's pointed, it's sharp, it's hilarious, but it also has these layers of depth. And based on how conscious you are of the happenings in the world, you're able to access his work at the various levels of depth. And I, I believe the same role exists from myself as a musician, where on the service level, we create a work of art that can be enjoyed for the sake of enjoying um, the, the listening experience, right? But then there are also these other layers of meaning in terms of uh, expressing what it is to be a black man in the world, a black man with a uh, doctorate degree in classical music, which is not typically um, connected to the African-African-American experience. And, and then all of the responsibilities and functionality of African music as it came across the Atlantic and how that evolved from being culturally African prior to slavery to then becoming culturally Black as a result of slavery. All of those things are in there. And I felt like uh, with this being the 400th commemoration of that auspicious day in, in August when the first 20 and odd Negroes, as they were called, Africans from what's present-day Angola, arrived on the shores of North America as enslaved human beings. This is a time to kind of remember and refocus and begin to uh, reclaim our narrative in a way that allows all of us, all of humanity, to be better than we have been the last four or five hundred years. So timing-wise... Because I mean, mm -hmm. yes, yes, it is in the, the the anniversary, but we're we're in this really weird social, <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. The, the um, and I I'm trying my best to uh be be diplomatic, um, with my wording, but the the environment right now is is very um fragile. Why? Mm -hmm. Why do you feel like this message besides the anniversary? sort of is more impactful now? Well, it's like Dave Chappelle said, this is the best time to be an artist. This is exactly the time to be an artist because our role as artists is to show a different reality. Sometimes better, sometimes a reflection of the reality as it is, but in a caricature. And, and for my part, I believe in balance, what the ancient Phoenicians or what the Greeks called, Egyptians called, ma'at. Right, And so in a time of craziness where the political discourse is as divisive 
as it is dangerous. Uh, we need artists and regular people, just people walking down the street in the community, talking about building what King would call the beloved community, uh, building a sense of being that is inclusive because we are one human family and, and hopeful and all that kind of stuff. Um, we have to do our best to balance that narrative. There will always be people and institutions in the world who are greedy, who want to make sure that they gain at the expense of other people uh, who lose. But I believe that we can create a world where everybody wins. And it's not so much that everybody wins, so therefore nobody's special. But everybody wins means everyone has the equal opportunity to be their best selves. You know, I, I don't think that's far-fetched. I just think it's about intention. D'Angelo said, the question ain't do we have the resources to rebel, is do we have the will? And the question my work asks, do we have the will to visualize a different future and then do what we have to do to manifest that future? Well, there. I mean, taking in what you just said, there, there are multiple levels there, and it, it reminds me of a couple of different things, because I... I think contrary to belief, most people assume like, you know, African-Americans are sort of this uh, monolith, right? We all sort mm -hmm. of are on the same page regarding whether it, we're talking about like, you know, socioeconomic policies or like, you know, social policies or just, I mean, anything, even if you reduce it down to like, I don't know, taste in movies or music or, or whatever. Or right, what have right. I had chicken and waffles for breakfast, didn't you? No, no, I, I, I definitely. <laughs> what I definitely you didn't? didn't. No, oh, man. no, I okay. didn't. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, it's funny because I, I love everything that's unhealthy. I just try my best. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm obsessive about self control. So I, I hear that. yeah, so I indulge every once in a while, but then like, you know, whenever I snap back into reality, I, I try my best to, you know, be responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. in regards to the, the social things that you've touched on, for example, if we were talking about, um, equality or, or justice or anything like that, I, I usually find that. I have leanings that are a little bit more conservative in terms mm -hmm. of, I guess, uh, economic policy, but whereas I might be more liberal in regards to social policies. Mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. where do you think there's a there's a balance in in regards to messages where everybody could get on board? So. Um... It's interesting you ask that because I've been in uh, several conversations along those lines um, this week. My my sense is this: um, there's the right, there's the left, there's progressive, there's conservative. There's all these false binaries. My question is uh, kind of your question: where is the middle ground that everybody can agree to? And it's not the middle ground that people have to necessarily compromise. It's the middle ground where everybody sees themselves in the solution. And I think that that comes as a result of human-centered practices, right? Again, um, ma'at, the idea of balance. How do we, from an economic standpoint, how do we build wealth while also ensuring or doing our best to ensure that those do not have access to wealth 
based on their birth or um, uh, economic, not economic, ethnic or socioeconomic circumstances also have opportunity to build wealth, right? There are some artists who are better than others at their craft. There are some basketball players who are better than other basketball players. I mean, talent and all that kind of stuff notwithstanding, how do we create an environment where if I want to be a janitor, I can support myself in a way that does not make me envious of someone who's a hedge fund manager at the expense of my own joy. And I think if we look at it that way, then the question is not about wealth generation for the sake of wealth generation. It's about how we add value to the communities in which we live. Well, and, and through adding that value, how do we sustain ourselves? And wealth might be a part of that. Wealth might not be a part of that. But, you know, that is what it I, is, I understanding that, that we're in a capitalistic system. That's tricky when you're, you're dealing with, with people, when you're dealing with humans, because there's so many things in there that are more so subjective, right? Because how... Yeah, but it's also about culture. Yeah. Kind of to your point, right? The subjectivity of anything is based on a cultural outlook. We've been socialized to believe certain things. That doesn't make those things true. Okay, so how do we... Because, I mean, then you have to somehow, across the board... I mean, you have hard numbers when it comes to finances. Mm -hmm. We could basically say mm -hmm. uh, a, liv a livable wage is, we'll say, $17 an hour or, or something around those mm -hmm. lines. So we get everyone a livable wage. So from a logistical standpoint, everyone should be okay now. But... <laughs> but... To that point right there, because there, there are a lot of nuances in, in the line of conversation that we're in right now. Yeah. Living wage is not sustainable wage. Right? Okay. I can I might be able to live on $17 an hour, meaning um, my basic needs are met. I, I can keep my lights on, I can keep a roof over my head, and I can eat. But am I saving money for the future, rainy day kind of situation? I might have a living wage, but if an emergency hits... I'm back in positive, right? Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, and then when, when I say $17 livable... $17 means one thing in the Midwest, and there's something different completely in New York or San Francisco. So I hear what you're saying, but again, it's, it is tricky because it's so nuanced. And I think if we thought about it at the macro, even from the standpoint of economics, um, where the society was focused on the health and well-being of the human beings that make up that society. Then we start to see different paths and different solutions to create that society. They, and I, I didn't do a ton of research, so you correct me if I'm wrong. Um, they're, mm -hmm. They were saying close to the end, um, Martin Luther King's message became more about classism than racism. Again, I, you know, this is just, Hearsay, this is Yeah, it was just, about economic parity. Yeah, yeah basically. Right. So in in the midst of that conversation, when I say livable wage and seventeen might be low, um Well it's relative is yeah, what I was yeah, saying. Yeah. But um when I say livable, I'm I'm talking about like, you know, living life to the fullest to a degree. You have enough mm -hmm. money where you can um you know, the the American dream. Go on a vacation once a year, take care of your family you know, have enough movie money to maybe eat out once or twice a month, mm -hmm. that that sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Now, comparatively, I mean, just right now, that's that's pretty nice because if we were to compare, um, like you know, for example, uh, my my parents ha- are are Haitian, so I have like you know that that background. Mm-hmm. Most people below the the poverty line in the United States still live better than I'll say yes. like ninety percent underdeveloped on, countries. Yeah. Yes. So again, that, that becomes relative. Now, if I'm a janitor and I'm I'm earning a livable wage, but you know, you got guys like uh, Jeff Bezos who like you know, no offense to Jeff Bezos, like you know, he, he <laughs> built his company and all that good stuff. There, there's still like a, a level of disparity. I don't think jealousy is something you can wipe out that 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 easily i think whenever you're able to create a comparison there are always going to be those those types of issues right but that's still defined by cultural norms right even the examples that you used are through the lens of the current culture as it is the way we you and i and everybody else in america have been socialized to economic anything um, if you take it uh, from a different perspective, through the lens of what Julius Nyerere calls um, African socialism, Julius Nyerere was the first president uh, of uh, present-day Tanzania. Um, he argues uh, that in Ujima, um essays on African socialism, he would argue, he argues in that book that a Jeff Bezos is where he is. Uh, because of the exploitation of other people in his country, right? Not so much, it's not a problem that Jeff Bezos started a business and was successful. The problem from Julius Nyerere's perspective is that Bezos hoards resources for his own gain at the expense of others. And I think that's a a cultural perspective that is just different from how we see um, economics, as an example, in the West, mm-hmm. where, and it's not so much, I don't have a problem with communism and socialism. I mean, they're just all different economic systems. But um, I guess the through line of this conversation is if we were able to precipitate a cultural shift, and that's really what my work is about, understanding that at the baseline, we are all one human family. One human family. And as an, an evolution out of that core belief, I believe that policies will begin to shift and uh, procedures begin to shift and practices begin to shift. So there might not be equality because equal is not equal because equal is relative. But you might get to the point where there's equity. Equity means you were born, or let's not even say that, let's say Equity means you have a family of four, I have a family of seven, of seven, but we each are then able to provide for our family in a way that provides dignity to ourselves and our family members as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Your family of four might require less resources than my family of seven, but as long as we all have what we need, there's no reason for us to then go and, and plot and plan how to manipulate the other to get more resources. I mean, it's a cultural way of seeing things as opposed to an economic way of seeing things. Okay. And I think that is how we begin to uh, build balance. So, it, excuse me while I continue to play devil's advocate. Um, mm-hmm. That's fine. This you, is fine. So, you, you're a doctor. 
So you mm-hmm. went to, I, I assume that you went to school for, for your extended period of time. Um, you worked really hard on, on your, your doctorate and like, you know, like, you know, putting together your thesis and so on and so forth. Now, do you feel like the work you put in, let's say, versus someone who, who hasn't done all of that, says maybe hasn't gotten a degree or has an associate's degree or, or what have you, do you feel like that person should have as much equity as as you do? In I absolutely to- do. Okay. Because it was my choice to pursue these 16 years, in my case, of, of education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's fundamentally what it comes down to, right? If we are creating societies that help human beings optimize and realize their potential, then we have those kinds of options. I have cousins who literally started mopping floors and cleaning toilets, and they built a business and are now multimillionaires. They don't have graduate degrees. No, but the the graduate degree was just an example. Like, I mean, sweat equity is... I'm following your example, and I'm saying exactly that, right? They, I wouldn't even argue this. I saw them put as much work into building their business as I put into getting these three pieces of paper called degrees, right? I had the option to go build a business and become or build wealth. I chose to invest in the academic space because I I felt a different uh, vocational pull or, or, or call, right? Yeah. What's great about that situation is not how much money one set of folks have versus the other, is that we have the option to make those choices. But then, and so I feel fulfilled in pursuing uh, the more intellectual kind of pathway, and they feel f- fulfilled in pursuing the the business pathway, and we have a great time over drinks talking about our experience. <laughs> no, of, <laughs> you know of what course, I mean? there's no jealousy involved. But what I'm saying is. At the end of the day, there was a a sort of a trade off in in time. Whether it was you spending time getting the degree and studying and so on and so forth, and them spending mm-hmm. time building this business from scratch. Because you know, I've I've been on both sides of that. But mm-hmm. in my example, I'm just talking about incentivizing, you know, certain behaviors versus someone who decides. Well, you know what? If I'm gonna have the same thing as the next guy, why put in the work? Yeah. Well, again, that's that's where culture comes into play, and I, I think in the economic argument that you're making, it assumes a lot. And I think in the in the cultural argument I'm making, I'm also assuming a lot. Yeah. And they're not always mutually exclusive and equal and opposite, right? Mm-hmm. But there are some foregone conclusions based on experiences. Um, but then there are also folks who want to succeed but don't have avenues to succeed. And they Agreed. end up, in a lot of ways, being victims of the same narrative as the people who don't want to succeed and would rather take advantage of the system. Agreed. Uh, you know? and I think and um... I, I fully acknowledge that. And, there, and again, there's a, though, a argument of, huh? uh, um, that becomes a conversation of opportunity because I think we're on the same page mm-hmm. in regards to 
everyone should have the same opportunities and there should be basically a level playing field regardless of like, you know, sex, race, creed, so on and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think if we have a society that is focused on that and they're creating policies, infrastructure, systems that are human centered to get that level of equity and balance, even maybe egalitarianism to a certain extent later down the line, then we might see a shift in those behaviors. There are always going to be folks who might want to get up, uh, one up on someone or, or that kind of thing. But I think we might be able through culture and socialization, you know, relegate that to uh, an anomaly rather than a norm. Because currently we live in a system where a lot of what folks call success and wealth building is um, another form of exploitation, you know? Um, if you made a billion dollars and you have a multinational corporation and you don't pay, quote-unquote, a sustainable or living wage, then you're exploiting your labor force. Yeah, and I I agree with that 110%, and I think it's, it's a flaw in the system because mm-hmm. I think the the idea that human beings would somehow self-regulate all the time i i don't think i think you you sort of you sign (laughs) a a social contract when when you're like sort of born into the the united states or anywhere in the world where it's like you know we agree that there are certain things i mean we have laws but we agree there are certain things that are just egregious and i think if paying someone less than a social uh, uh a livable wage was like you know deemed like you know socially like you know immoral and people frowned upon it and so on like Mm -hmm. that'd be Mm -hmm. that'd be great but for the most part like most people don't don't care unless it it affects them directly and and it becomes a talking point to a degree but i mean who's really doing anything well i mean there there are changes like you know coming around but like you know they're gradual if there were well, policies and, and, in place. to your point, it's about intention, yeah. right? And and a lot of folks will, will say, well, we don't want social engineering. And they say that missing the whole point that where we are right now is a result of social engineering. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's why I think my work focuses on these big issues to to have these kinds of conversations where we can ask the questions and have dialogue around it, and hopefully we get enough people asking these conversations that we start saying, well, if we're agreeing to a certain extent, at least on the big issues, to an earlier point about that middle ground where everybody can see themselves, that these things that have become normal aren't necessarily beneficial to the most people um, that they could be beneficial to. How do we begin to shift that? There has to be intention. One great example is... um, the gender uh, bias that existed uh, in Iceland for some time. And they got their first president in, I think, 1975 or 77. And from that point, there were federal policies about uh, gender uh, ratios from boardrooms to uh, committees to all kinds of stuff, right? And here in the States, we would call that social engineering. But now, in 2020, it's now normal to have a board that is gender uh, balanced, 
you know, no more than 60% one gender, 40% uh, the other gender. That's... Oftentimes, it's more equal than even that. But that took two, three generations of policy that mandated that kind of practice that... for it to become a behavior. That's that's tricky for me on, on two parts because it's... Mm-hmm. There's a part of me who believes, like, you know, whoever's best for the job, regardless of gender, should get the job. Mm-hmm. But then on the on the flip side, I, I completely acknowledge that sort of having people decide that or sort of make that determination for themselves with whatever, like, you know, bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, mm-hmm. is, is sort of flawed. So, I mean, it's it's tricky. Well, that's how policy helps shape behavior, right? To your, your, your exact point, I believe in an egalitarian context that whomever is best for anything should do that thing. And everybody's good at something, right? So if we had a truly egalitarian society, everybody would be able to find a role that adds value to their community. We do not have that. And what... Um, the basic point was from the Icelandic example, they recognized it. They created policies that helped men in particular address their implicit <laughs> and explicit biases, right? And then over the course of a couple of generations, those biases went to the wayside and gender equity became the norm, right? So now it's not... Um, an anomaly to walk into a Fortune 100 equivalent company there and see a woman CEO and see the majority of that board, or at least, you know, half of that board also be women. Whereas here, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right? And that's kind of the work that I think we have to do in community. And we cannot do that work in community unless we're able to have these conversations and ask the questions. And that's why, as a musician, I think music is the best tool to even broach the topic because music in and of itself is neutral. What makes music good or bad is subjective. What makes music have meaning also is relatively subjective. Um, So people could come to the concert and not have any clue about who Mark Womax is and what his music is about. And then they enjoy the music, hopefully, and they come up to Mark Womack and say, I really love that music. Is there a story behind that? This happens all the time. And I say, well, yes, it is. Thank you for asking. Here's the story. And they're like, oh, wow. And then we start a dialogue, and I get an email or a question. You say you read a book. What book would you suggest I read? And I suggest a book, and then there's a dialogue happening now, right? And um, a lot of times, those people want to connect with other people in their community who are who are now kind of seeing things differently or trying to see things differently. And now you've started something. And hopefully that group, grassroots, will grow in and do some things and change some things in their communities or not. But at least they're creating community in a different way. And I think music is a great tool. Art in general is a great tool to uh, catalyze those kinds of uh, various levels of engagement now it's it's funny and i'm I'm gonna shift gears a bit and excuse Mm -hmm. my my uh my segue there they're awful um 
um, so um, recently, uh, we're we're um, my office, my main office is based in Newark, New Jersey. Um, we Ooh. we bounce around. We do a lot of work in Manhattan, and it's just sort of the perfect space between where I live. I don't know how familiar you are with Jersey, but that has very nothing. much. Bro. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm over in South Orange, but my my office mm-hmm. is in Newark. And we don't do a ton of work in the city. We we produce the mayor's podcast. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff um, regarding, like you know, just trying to help out locally. But for the most part, our work our takes us everywhere, mostly um, mm-hmm. New York. But I I got involved with the the artist community locally. Now um, mm-hmm. this is this in is Orange or Newark in Newark. It's Newark Orange or Newark? Okay. In mm-hmm. in in Newark. Um, the communities of artists in South Orange versus the community of artists in Newark are two completely <laughs> different animals. Yeah, that's what I was asking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and I think it's a, a thing of, of resources and motivation and, and, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, it's, it's easier to be an artist when, like, you know, you, you have wealth or a family that could basically sustain right. you or so on and so forth. Whereas, like, you know, mm-hmm. most of the artists in Newark don't have that sort of thing. And yeah. um, some of them have received support. So I'm on, I'm on, I'm of two minds of it, but I, I lean a certain way because I'm very into like, you know, building infrastructure and sustainability. So mm-hmm. um, Newark is going through this renaissance and like all these exciting new things are happening. All these companies are coming in. Audible just recently moved. Um, we were actually, I think, second place or we came very close to um, becoming uh, Amazon's new home in that whole H2 mm-hmm. debacle. Yeah. Um, yep. And you have artists who are feeling like, you know, they're being left out of the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Things are becoming increasingly more expensive. Resources that were made available to them before aren't made available to them now. And I'm, it's tricky because, of course, you, you feel bad. But then on the flip side, it's like, well, you had these resources. You had facilities made available to you for free for several years, let's say for like three years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you you weren't able to turn a profit. It's not sustainable. What, what role at that point does the public sector have in regards to responsibility in sustaining you? Yeah. And yeah. Well, I think in that example... Yeah, the the community or the society at large did not do its job in the first place, right? Um, kind of to your earlier point, I'm also fiscally conservative and socially liberal, and in, in a lot of ways that can be an oxymoron given the conversation. But I understand that yeah. the fiscal conservative in me says that we should not give handouts but hands up, right? So if you have a thriving artist community in an economically depressed area, it's not enough to give them access to tools and resources without teaching them how to uh, use them in a way that creates sustainability. Here's an example. Here in Columbus, Ohio, Mm -hmm. uh, I work at a community foundation that supports a lot of nonprofits. And um, particularly when it comes to the arts, I'm an advocate of engaging young artists, not only in the development of their skill set, but also in the development of their business uh, skill set, right? 
I can be a great painter, drummer, uh, piano player, singer, what have you. But if I don't know how to bring a product to market, market that product and price that product in a way that will resonate with an audience and, and bring about a profit that allows me to create the next product, then I'm basically going to be an armchair artist or um, a weekend warrior kind of thing because I'll never, to your but point, get to the point of there has to be a sustainability. There has to be a willingness right. to we, learn. That's right. But those are learned skills. Not everyone is a genius at marketing or product development just because, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have conversations all the time in our local artist community about sustainability to your point. If there are these resources available, how do you leverage those resources to sustainability? And most artists, as someone who spent 16 years in college studying the world of European music, I never once was forced to take a business class. I never once, it was never a requirement for me to understand how to read and um, uh, develop a contract. The only way I do business as an artist is through contracts, but I never had to learn how to write, how to read, how to understand a contract, right? Um, And so that's another loophole, a flaw in our system. You know, we have a lot of folks in the world who have some gift, some talent that can be leveraged uh, to generate resources to sustain themselves. But what we often don't do is teach them how to do that. Uh, Rather, we would uh, teach them how to work for somebody else to benefit that company, corporation, as opposed to doing that thing that they're most passionate about that likely would bring added value to the world. There's a tricky side There are people that that don't want to do that stuff, right? They want to work for somebody else. But in the case of what you're describing, artists who are um, by nature entrepreneurial, maybe without the skills, how do we help them develop those skills? Well, well, you, it's, I mean, they're, the flaw becomes um, basically a human one where a lot of these yeah. artists, and I feel like there's like a case study waiting to be done down here. Um, <laughs> these artists are are naturally suspicious and rightly so to some degree. A lot of them have sort of been, uh, I guess, screwed over. But then on the flip mm-hmm. side, I think it it's a level of miseducation. So you came up, under mm-hmm. artists, you have a lot of young artists who came up under senior artists who had bad business practices, but this is what mm-hmm. they learned. So they sort of came up in this toxic business environment and they don't know any better. So whenever right. you say contract or you use the word corporate or company or whatever, it, it it's sort of like a, a bad word to them. It's, it's like a curse word. Um, corporate's mm-hmm. a bad word. Corporations are inherently evil so on and so forth. You, there, to to push these people forward, you you couldn't really push them as much as drag them or, or sort of leave them to their own devices and let them sort of like fade out. But there's a sense of entitlement also that's dangerous because you got, like say for example, uh, there was a, a artist incubator that was made free for several years through some some donations and local colleges and so on and so forth. But eventually mm-hmm. those resources dry up and then the artists are sort of like, well, what happened to the free space? And they were like, hey, we told you guys this was only going to be for three years. We were hoping in that time you would have figured out a way to monetize what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. 
you haven't. So now what's the what's the solution? Well, that's that's the whole point, right? There is a such thing as toxic charity, right? Here's, again, a case where resources were offered with the expectation that something would happen and not knowing exactly what the programmatic aspect of the program was, uh, of the initiative was. How am I expected to develop sustainable, profitable infrastructure if I don't even know what that looks like, all I know is that I need paint and canvas and I can make that thing work. <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily know how to get in the gallery. I don't know how to sell um, my work. I don't even know how to make a website. I mean, those are all practical things that artists in particular for this conversation just aren't taught, you know, and that's, I think, the loophole or the human error, design error maybe, in the whole uh, artistic space because we appreciate those anomalies that break through, but we don't cultivate all the other talent and um, allow them to really kind of set their own idea of what success looks like. For me, success is not being on um, uh, what is any of the pop culture shows that musicians are on now. It's not necessarily that. If that happens, great. But for me, success is stuff like this. Being able to have substantive conversations uh, that happen as a result of the work that I do. And hopefully um, those conversations will help somebody think about something differently and begin to um, have an impact in their corner of the world because of the different way they're thinking. You know, um, But to me, well, not to me, to my mother, I might be a failure because she's like, you can't pay your rent playing drums. You know what I'm saying? Success is relative. And if we give people the tools to be successful, then we should allow them to define success for themselves. Okay. So another another horrible segue, and we're, we're going to shift again uh, because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious about you now and, and not really the, the social policies and all that, but what mm -hmm. drives you exactly? You, you get up in the morning and you you're you're pushing this 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 work which is beautiful by the way and like you know I, you. I thoroughly enjoyed the the demo i i checked out and it does make me want to sort of check out the whole work what what drives you to continue to do this uh it's a vocation it's it's a calling it's it's not just a passion i mean I have four or five jobs. I teach at Ohio State University. I work in philanthropy. Uh, I'm a composer for a commission. I'm a performer. I'm a lecturer. All these things. I'm a father. I'm a husband. And I just believe that we are all put on the planet to do something with our time here that adds value to the planet itself. And I'm fortunate enough to work in an area of nonprofit where I can see uh, the happenings on the ground and at the 30,000-foot system level. Um, and I see the discrepancies there, and I see where the gaps are, and I see that a lot of um, things that happen as a result of philanthropy actually don't solve problems. They, they um, exacerbate those issues because we're not helping people learn how to be self-sufficient. I mean, the cliché adage is if you give somebody fish, They'll be hungry the next day, but if you teach them how to fish, they'll never be hungry again. And so having grown up in 
you know, an inner city urban area that's not safe, have been stuck up by, you know, armed robbers and all this other kind of stuff. Um, I go back to, I was just at um, my neighborhood middle school yesterday talking to seventh and eighth graders about how they can focus even now at uh, 12 and 13 years old on what they can do to make their communities better. Because we think about kids not really having any power or agency. And I'm like, no, you, you know, you're leaders right now. So how can you cultivate the skills? How can you, you know, engage your teachers differently? How can you think differently about the world while still having fun, while still playing uh, Minecraft and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, thinking a little differently about your role in the world now before, you know, you graduated high school and maybe you graduated college or been in some vocational program. And you're like, what do I do with my life? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, that's what gets it's me a up, weird conversation you know? to have with kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's always been a weird conversation to have with kids where it's like, you know, you're not you're not old enough to to drink, but you got to decide what you're going to do with the rest of your life, like right now. No, it's not that they have to decide. I would never put that yeah. pressure on anyone, even if they're 40 just, or 50 uh, years old. I, mean, I think you that's a social that thing. But the idea is you have to at least be thinking about it. Yeah. You know, um, as an example, I have an 18-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old daughter, and we've not forced them, my wife and I have not forced them in any direction, but they've naturally begun to land in areas of interest that make sense to them. You know, and so we've had those conversations with our children. Okay, I see you're gravitating toward musical theater. What do you like about it? Why do you like it? And how does it make you feel? Is that something you can see yourself doing when you're, you know, 18 or 20? You know, those kinds of questions. So they're at least thinking about these things. I wouldn't force them to do it. But if you haven't thought about it, by the time you're 18, you know, you're wondering why you don't know what path to take. It's because we as a society have not cultivated that critical thought about the future based on the present informed by the past, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to shift gears again. Uh, I'm going to keep doing it. I, I like I'm your sure. transition, right, by right, the way. I appreciate it. I always know uh-huh. when it's coming. You tell me. I'm going to shift gears. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, so, uh, recently, um, I was, I was in Toronto, um, I'm going back, um, and I I had a conversation with, um, another artist, Akon, and, um, he recently signed off and is doing, uh, some sort of, I've never heard of this being done before. He's building his own city in in Senegal. Um, when we spoke, it was it was about his cryptocurrency, but he alluded to the city. Now this is apparently actually happening. What do you think about that? I think that's out of sight. You know, again, like I said, my work is about identity, authenticity, and power. Power being the result of an understanding of who you are as an individual, engaging the world authentic, authentically from that identity, which equates to agency and power. Akon is a fantastic example of that, right? He's a person who used art to generate wealth and accessibility, and he's leveraged those things to be able to provide electricity to folks who didn't have it, to, you know, create a currency of his own, to folks who maybe didn't have a viable economic system. And now 
he's building a city. That's amazing. Yeah, that's insane. And I think the that's creative as all get out, man. It doesn't. I mean, that's like the, the ultimate. <laughs> the inspiration was the the fictional city of Wakanda and the movie Black mm-hmm. Panther, apparently. Yeah, I mean that to me is is transformational thinking. That's the beauty of the creative mind in practice, and I wish we had more people thinking at that level and scale because you got to think about it like this: if you are creating a new city. You have the opportunity to create culture. You have the opportunity to create new norms as a result of that culture. You have the opportunity to create um, new ways of thinking about commerce, about education, about religion, about all of these things. And that's not to say that folks will come to that city if they come with those ideas and ideals already in place. But it does give you an opportunity to question those uh, normative behaviors and belief systems in a very new setting and and begin to challenge them in, a, in an effort to create something new. That's exciting to me. So, I, I definitely hope we were able to have another follow-up conversation because there's so much more I want to sort of touch on and explore. And it's rare that I actually... I mean, we have a lot of these conversations. And I think from the perspective when... You're, you're having conversations that could potentially, you know, they, they have a lot of landmines. We're in a social space where, you know, you, you don't want to piss anybody off. But um, I, I think these conversations are important. I think the art and the work you've done is is important. And I, I hope it adds to the narrative. Thank you, Reggie, for having me and having this conversation. Please uh, keep it going. No problem. I, I really appreciate your time. Dr. Mark Lomax II. Um, yes, sir. Thanks for coming on to Thought Hack. Thanks for having me. Peace. Later. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Catalyst Case, Sendstroke, Wildhorn Outfitters, and of course, Blue Microphone. This is Reg, and you're listening to Thought Hack.